Welcome to Season 3, Episode 2 of So Strange. I'm your host, Andy Myers. I'm an author and paranormal researcher who just got back from a very long road trip. Over the course of four days, I drove 1,169 miles through two states, including three cities, and I investigated six haunted locations. On today's show, you'll be my co-pilot as I take you along for a ride and share what I experienced during my travels. So buckle your seatbelt and hold on tight, because things are about to get so strange. Okay, before we jump right into this episode, just a little context. So a while ago, I decided to create this project that I named Where To Next. It was a road trip idea that I had where I will become everybody's real-life choose-your-own-adventure story, essentially. So what I did is I had this kooky idea on my social media pages. I asked people where I should travel to in search of paranormal adventures and investigations, and I gave them a few different choices in a few different states. Um, I asked people if I should go to Holdridge, Nebraska, which is the home of a haunted brewery and apparently also the uh, most haunted restaurant in Nebraska. Option B, I asked people if I should travel to Cherokee, Iowa, uh, to the underground tunnels at an old mental health institute. Or option number three, uh, to Shawnee, Kansas, in a haunted cemetery slash downtown ghost tour. And people voted. And as the results uh, turned out, 318 people wanted me to go to Holdridge, to the brewery and restaurant. 286 voted for the tunnels at the Mental Health Institute. And uh, 52 voted for the uh, Kansas haunted cemetery. So... I packed my bags and I went on this solo adventure. Uh, just me, myself, and I uh, packed my bags, packed some, uh, you know, some essentials, and went with absolutely no destination in mind beyond Holdridge, Nebraska. Because uh, as the project stated, every day we would do a, a new vote. So after I investigated the uh, the haunted location, we would uh, form another vote, and I would go where people told me to go. And I intended on uh, putting a lot of miles on my car during this particular trip. So like I said, 1,169 miles later, I made it back home. And it was fun. <laughs> and it was kind of uh, crazy not knowing where I'd end up from day to day. And, you know, the weather and the whole trip itself threw a few curveballs uh, that were unexpected, even for an intuitive person like myself. And I can uh, truly say, you know, that four days later, it was an adventure that I'll never forget. And I do have to apologize. I do understand that this episode is coming to you a day late. My sincere apologies. I did not even get back into my home city of Omaha, Nebraska until yesterday evening. And uh, as you know, <laughs> then you got to unpack and do the laundry and shower and wash off the road trip. But here I am, one day late. Uh, please accept my apologies. I'm usually pretty punctual with uh, getting these episodes out on Fridays, but better late than never. So let's start with uh, Holdridge, Nebraska. Now, this was a two-hour drive from Omaha, and uh, I ended up meeting up with a lady named Stacy Wolf, uh, who was my contact uh, from, as she was the person who put uh, the, the Lost Way Brewery, put their name in the hat, 
and people voted for her. And I met Stacy, her boyfriend Mike, and one of the co-owners of the brewery. Her name was Jessica. And I just showed up in Holdridge, <laughs> and uh, they I was meeting them for the first time. They showed me around, and they, they talked a little bit about the history of the place. And it was a very, very cool place. I was telling Stacy I didn't know what to expect, but the brewery was even cooler than I expected. It was well-decorated. It was just so cozy. I mean, there were lights everywhere. You could tell there was some history to the place. You know, this wasn't just a cookie-cutter uh, bar that's, you know, in a strip mall, which, no offense to those establishments, but this one clearly had some history. Tall ceilings, woodwork everywhere. Uh, they actually told me that the facility back in the day was a creamery, and they showed me some grates and vents in the floor where they would use to drain some of the liquids and products. And years later, it turned into a print shop, and that went on for a few decades, and then the place actually sat empty. The building sat, sat empty for several decades, uh, a guy purchased it, um, and he was apparently kind of a tinkerer, uh, maybe a collector, machinist. He owned the place for a while and just slowly collected a bunch of stuff. You know how it goes. You probably have an uncle or a grandpa who's like this. He has an old shed or an old barn or an outbuilding, and uh, he has spare car parts. He has trinkets and whatnots and knickknacks and bins full of uh, old tools and nuts and bolts, and he always says, ah, I'll... I'll I'll make use of this someday. And his wife rolls her, her eyes and we're like, we're going to have to get rid of this stuff eventually, Frank, when you're dead. But at one point in time, apparently this Lost Way Brewery, um, this guy who had purchased it, he had an entire airplane wing just sitting on the floor. So lots of stuff, lots of debris. When Jessica and uh, three of the other co-owners bought this place, they, uh, you know, renovated, fixed it up. And uh, actually, Stacy, again, who was my contact, uh, she kind of took me around the facility. And if you could imagine, uh, the bar area is up front, and it kind of forms a circle. So, you know, you go back into the back area, and there's some couches and uh, chairs and places to sit. And then there's a restroom, and you wrap around to the other end, and there's the office. And then there's uh, the brewery spot where they make the beer. And then it kind of pops out through another hallway back to the front. So the whole building itself basically forms a large circle. And Stacy shared with me that on uh, more than one occasion, she actually saw a shadow figure or an apparition kind of standing in the doorway, uh, kind of leading back into the hallway. Now, unanimously, everybody that I was chatting there with, even, uh, even you know, Mike, her boyfriend, who is a little bit more grounded, a little more level-headed. He's not a complete skeptic, but he's just a little more scientific-minded in nature. And even he admitted that the weird energy pocket of this facility was the back area near where the public restrooms were at. And again, this whole place is decorated very nicely. They had uh, couches, like actual couches, chairs, kind of like a hangout nook back there. They even had an old uh, Pac-Man slash Galaga arcade game, which was awesome. Uh, they had some, you know, growlers and, and uh, mugs and jugs and all sorts of kind of brewery memorabilia. So it, it didn't look dilapidated or, or unkempt or anything like that. It looked really nice, but intuitively, energetically, back there near the restrooms, it felt a little off. And I told Stacy what would be really cool is if we brought in a team of paranormal investigators, like a whole team, bring in the pros, 
And without telling them any anything at all about the history of the place, I bet an unbiased third party would also unanimously agree that the weird energy, the place where it feels most haunted, was back there by the restrooms. Now, she reported, coincidentally, that's where a lot of the strange noises come from, was near the bathrooms. We had a chuckle about that. <laughs> Little bathroom humor joke. But in all seriousness, you know, a lot of the workers there felt like they were being watched. You know, especially late at night. You know, they're counting money, they're doing their admin work, their paperwork, and it's just kind of this feeling, not malicious, not evil, it's just kind of a feeling of being watched, a feeling of you're not alone. And add to that knocks, noises, bumps coming from other rooms of, of the brewery. And it, it, it was interesting, and we hung out there for a little while, swapped some stories. Um, you know, and it's kind of funny because... <laughs> as this goes with any haunted location, I've I've found this to be true for many years now. You know, you ask a person if they have stories, like haunted paranormal stories, and initially they they kind of downplay it. Nah, not really. But you get to talking to them, and then they just unload. And everyone had like two or three stories um, of things that they had personally felt or experienced. Um, some of it was not tangible. It was more like a, just a feeling or a hunch or an intuition. Uh, but yeah, Lost Way Brewery in Holdridge, Nebraska. Very cool place. Um, I, I, I really enjoyed my visit and, and I was in good company. I got along really well with Stacy and Mike and Jessica. Um, and for each place that I'm going to talk about on this episode, I'm going to rank them on what I'm calling the spook factor. So on a scale of 1 to 10, I would rank the Lost Way Brewery a 3 out of 10. Now, this, now, chill for a second, okay? This is not a Google review. I'm not trying to, you know, ruin anybody's uh, haunted reputation here. So 3 out of 10 is not a bad review. Um, it's just the place didn't feel malicious. So if we're talking like most terrifying places I've ever been, it's a 3 out of 10. Yes, I do believe it's haunted, um, never did I get the feeling like, oh my God, I, I have to leave or I can't be here or something's going to reach out and grab me from the shadows. No, it wasn't a feeling like that, but you could definitely tell that there was something in there. And if our baseline is a place where there's never been any paranormal activity, which would obviously be a zero out of 10, I'm going to say Lost Way comes in at, at a three. Next, uh, Mike and Stacy, uh, they hopped in their truck. They were like, follow me, we're going to the speakeasy. Now, the speakeasy uh, was about a 10, maybe 15-minute drive uh, from Holdridge. I think technically this restaurant called the speakeasy, uh, technically I think it's still associated with Holdridge, but uh, it's in a kind of a historic area of Nebraska called Sacramento. And upon arriving there, and it was in the middle of nowhere, by the way. I mean, you you drive basically with nothing around you but cornfields and we're taking this road and I'm like where the heck is the restaurant and we arrive and like it's it's just this restaurant in the middle of nowhere and I you know upon arriving I kind of made a joke well it's not Sacramento California that's for sure because it was cold that night it was frigidly cold and uh, but it was worth it and you pull up and this place if you could almost imagine like an actual like speakeasy, you know, from the 1920s or 1930s, hardly any signage out front. I mean, it almost looks like this place is meant to be kept a secret. And so a uh, little 
little rundown of this place. So the restaurant actually sits, like I said, in a historical area of Sacramento, Nebraska, which was known as Phelps County Village. And the town was actually established in the late 1870s, and at the time it had a peak population of about 200 people. Uh, now, currently, the uh, the owner of the Speakeasy restaurant and head chef, uh, his name is Ryan Poles, and he's turned this place to, seriously into one of Nebraska's best fine dining establishments. The food is top notch. Like you, you can't get steak like this hardly anywhere. I mean, we're right here in the heart of beef country, and everyone I talked to regarding this place, I mean, they were like, "Yeah, yeah, it's haunted, but you have to try the food." And you know, the Speakeasy, um, it's the home of a ghostly entity that they affectionately refer to as Faceless Fred. And the story goes that Fred, well, he was a little too friendly with the female patrons once upon a time, and his wife decided that enough was enough, and she killed Fred with an axe, and she cut off his face for good measure. Yeah, that'll ruin your weekend, huh? So his body was buried, uh, it buried the body in a well, and the restaurant now sits on top of where the well once stood. Um, now, uh, Fred is known to haunt the kitchen, especially uh, throwing pots, throwing pans, uh, and, and checking out the women who dine there. And the lady uh, who actually, uh, the manager, her name was Erica, and she's the one that kind of told us this story, and I, I documented the video on my Facebook page. So if you want to hear the story from her mouth, in her words, she was like a local historian, hop over to my, uh, my Facebook page, Psychic Medium Andy Myers on Facebook, uh, scroll back to around, I believe it was uh, January 23rd, January 24th, and check out that video because Erica, man, she, I, I feel like she's, she was meant to be a tour guide. But she's been a manager there for many years. And as she's telling the story about Faceless Fred and the well, she points to the floor that was literally right next to the table that we were sitting at. And she was like, yeah, the well, it's right there. Like we're basically on top of the well that holds um, Fred's body. So... <laughs> not not the most appetizing story to share before they brought us the mozzarella sticks, but cool nonetheless. And the place, I, I mean, the energy's palpable. Um, it, it almost feels like an old-timey bar, like from the 1920s, 1930s. Uh, they're known not only for their good food, but for their delicious drinks and cocktails. And the whole place, I mean, the whole place was virtually empty because we were there early on a weekday evening. Now, you go to the Speakeasy on a weekend, unless you have a reservation several days in advance, you're not getting in. I mean, this is the place to go to for anybody within a 100-mile radius of this place. That's how that's how popular it is. Uh, but inside, it's really cool. I mean, behind the bar, they have a giant, um, you know, a giant mirror. Um, uh, the employees there, they all their employees are like family. Uh, they, there's hardly any turnaround. They've been working there for years and years. And I, I believe um, right near the uh, bar, there was like a, a, a grain elevator or, or some sort of like dumbwaiter pulley system, it almost looked like. And, and they said that was original because obviously before it was a speakeasy, um, this was a whole different operation. And uh, so Faceless Fred, a little too friendly with the lady folk. Let that be a lesson to uh, all of you chauvinistic males out there. Keep your hands to yourself, all right? How about some manners every now and again? Because before you know it, you go talking to, you know, other ladies, your wife murders you and cuts off your face with an axe. And you've been warned. You know, don't be faceless Fred. Don't be like him.
But very cool place. I'm going to give the speakeasy uh, a solid 5 out of 10 on the spook factor meter and probably would have been higher if it weren't for the fact that the people that I were with were so incredibly nice. I mean, this place could have been like the doorstep of hell and I still would have felt pretty calm because I was in such good company. <laughs> so Erica was a sweetheart. And you know what's funny is that I didn't intend to stay for dinner. Um, I had yet to find a hotel to sleep in. Um, I actually had a psychic reading to deliver over the phone that evening, and I wasn't planning to stay, but, um, you know, uh, I was talked into it by Stacy and Mike, and I ended up having dinner with Stacy and Mike, ordered the chicken Oscar, mm, kissed the chef. It was so delicious. Little cauliflower garlic puree type dealy on the side. Some of the best food I've ever had. But yeah, speakeasy, Holdridge, Nebraska, 5 out of 10 on the spooko meter. And that night... Later into the evening, it was dark, it was cold, I eventually did find a hotel, uh, checked in, began asking people on my social media channels where to next. And I gave them a few options as to where I could travel next, uh, basically within a five-hour drive the following day. And as the votes shook out, most people wanted me to visit a haunted winery in Liberty, Missouri. So I planned to head there the next morning, but as fate would have it, our plans were destined to change because little did we know at the time, a storm was brewing. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, before we move on to the next haunted location I traveled to, just want to ask you to do me a favor and please rate and review So Strange on uh, your pod podcast platform of choice. Uh, give it a five-star review. Say a couple nice words. It goes a long way to ensure that I can continue to grow the show. And if you like the show, check out my other podcast called Paranormal Dads. On that show, it's uh, co-hosted by my two good buddies, Eddie and Pat. We uh, have a lot of chuckles, and we explore the world's monsters, myths, and mysteries. If you're not yet a subscriber to So Strange, you're missing out. Because every Thursday, I release a super strange bonus episode. So if you become a subscriber for $4.99 a month, you can, you can access two episodes a week instead of one. And you can double your high strangeness there. And uh, again, check out my social media pages. I am on TikTok and Facebook and YouTube under Psychic Medium Andy Myers. And you can find me on Instagram under Andy Myers 17 So... Let's get back into the action, and I'll tell you where I went next. So after visiting the Lost Way Brewery and checking out the Speakeasy restaurant, I got a good night's sleep, and I was intending on going to Liberty, Missouri the next day. Uh, but upon waking up, I checked the weather forecast and had uh, no choice but to change plans because Liberty, Missouri is located just outside of Kansas City, Missouri, and Kansas City uh, had their all their districts cancel cancel school because they got hit by a snowstorm and ice storm overnight. So I'm thinking, you know, safety first. That's no longer an option. And at this point in time, you know, I'm thinking 
uh, gosh, do I do I head south? You know, uh, I was almost tempted to drive down to North Texas or maybe Oklahoma City, somewhere warm to avoid the cold altogether. Uh, but I I had a change of heart with that, and I decided to go west. You know, as if it was the Oregon Trail, and I was a pioneer. I went west, and I I circled Denver, Colorado, on my map. And I told everybody on social media, I'm going to be in Denver later today. It was about a five and a half hour drive. And I asked them where I should go in the Denver area. So people chimed in, offered some suggestions. And a nice guy named Andy Andy Brewer on my uh, Facebook page said, hey, check out Cheeseman Park. <laughs> and this piqued my interest because, first of all, delicious name, you know, uh, made me think of the mozzarella sticks I had had the night before. Cheeseman Park, I love cheese, American cheese, pepper jack cheese, Colby Jack, and you name it, I'll eat it, Cheeseman Park. So I arrive in Denver, and again, this has been a trend for this whole trip that I was on, uh, had no idea where I was going to stay once I got to Denver. Um, but I, I arrived there, uh, it was late, it was uh, it was still light, but I only had about a half an hour of light before the sun went down. So before uh, finding a hotel, I thought I better get to this Cheeseman Park, check it out, get some video footage while the lighting's still good, you know, because I was documenting all my paranormal shenanigans along the way on all my social media pages. So I had GPS take me to Cheeseman Park. It was cold in Denver, um, pretty cold, chilly. I didn't have my uh, winter boots on, <laughs> just had shoes and my coat, and I hopped out of the car, and the whole park is snow-covered. And uh, Quick did a little bit of digging, a little bit of research on my phone before I got out of the car, trying to find out why people wanted me to go to Cheeseman Park. And uh, so while I'm still in my car... I'm looking this up on my phone, and apparently once upon a time in Denver's uh, historical past, uh, the city's, um, some of the city's poor people and those with infectious diseases and even some outlaws and criminals, they were buried at Cheeseman Park. Uh, it was a makeshift cemetery, uh, you know, for people who they either wanted uh, to, you know, get rid of, you know, hey, stay over there, don't get us sick with your bubonic plague or whatever you have, or for some of the poor people who couldn't necessarily afford a proper headstone or proper burial. And again, outlaws and criminals, um, they're like good riddance, you know, you're going to Cheeseman Park after you die. So 2,000 people were buried here before this place was converted to a park. Now, why they converted it to a park is beyond me. I don't know. It's like, you know, how do you... <laughs> How do you make a cemetery more spooky? Well, let's piss off all the spirits and put a park right on top of it, right? So they did, in all their wisdom. And since then, it's riled up some of the spirits. Uh, people in the park for years now have been reporting that at nighttime they can see glowing orbs floating about. They can see translucent ghostly specters walking around. Some people can hear moaning and groaning sounds, uh, which seems a little stereotypical for a ghost. I mean, might as well throw some chains on and rattle some chains like those old-timey ghosts. But yeah, people say this place is legit haunted. Uh, so I get out of the car and I walk over, and I have to admit this place doesn't look very daunting. It doesn't look all that spooky or malicious. In fact, it was actually kind of beautiful being there right during the, the sunset because... Boy, it was a beautiful sunset, golden uh, golden shades of yellow and orange. And uh, so I walked up there, and there's like 100 people with their dogs. Like it's an unofficial dog park. All these dogs are off their leash, wrestling around in the snow together. So I take some video and, you know, share on my social media pages some of the history of the park. And then I wandered over to talk to some of the locals. 
Uh, <laughs> I think I made some of them a little nervous, you know. Why is this strange guy approaching me and asking about paranormal things? And, and you know, most were pretty friendly. Uh, this one lady didn't want to talk to me, especially when I asked if I could, you know, do a live stream on my Facebook page. She was having none of that. But a lot of people, they were super friendly. The dogs were even friendlier. <laughs> I had, you know, labs and, and uh, Great Danes and Dalmatians jumping all over me. And I, and I love it because, uh, man, I sure miss my dog, Zico, who passed away a year ago. So I'm talking to these nice people, asking them about some of the history. And, they, you know, they're telling me basically the same thing, that there was a, it used to be a cemetery. Now it's a park. There's spooky specters, floating orbs, apparitions appear and disappear. And primarily it's at nighttime. Uh, one of the guys I was talking to in his early 20s, uh, he didn't want to be on camera, but, you know, I asked him if he's ever seen anything paranormal. And he said, not necessarily paranormal, but he did see something a little traumatizing. So apparently he was uh, walking his dog there a few years back, very early in the morning. And he saw some um, first responders kind of up ahead, over yonder, underneath some trees. He said he saw a guy hanging from a noose. Uh, hanging by a noose from one of the trees and uh, allegedly had committed suicide and uh, obviously that was a little uh, traumatizing for him to see that you know but that's the thing it, it almost makes you wonder does a does a haunted location and the negative vibes there does that act as like a homing beacon that attracts more negativity more trauma i know uh, there's this one particular forest in japan and the name escapes me but it's a forest in Japan that is notoriously uh, a spot where people go to commit suicide. So much so that all around the entrance of the park, they have like a suicide hotline number there. And it almost makes you wonder when, you know, if a traumatic, heavy place like this, if it almost puts people in an even more somber mood. Like, does it increase the chance um, of somebody making a bad decision and taking their own life? by being in a place like that and if so you know each death does it add to the uh does it add to the energetic imprint of the place you know does it does it further the negative stamp that it has uh, almost like layer after layer of sadness almost like slapping up a you know a new layer of wallpaper on top of 10 existing layers of wallpaper so but overall uh, you know i have to say despite the tragic history uh, despite the suicide, Cheeseman Park was a pretty cool place. And I know that sounds kind of backwards to say, um, but while I was there, I didn't feel particularly spooked. Now, maybe it was because there was a 100 people with a 100 friendly dogs and a gorgeous sunset thrown in for good measure, but I really didn't get the heebie-jeebies. Um, now, do I believe the place is haunted? Yes. But on my spook factor... Uh, Cheeseman Park in Denver, Colorado is going to come in at a 2 out of 10. And again, I'm not knocking it. Beautiful place. If somebody were asking me to rank it on like a really cool place to go, I would say like a 9 out of a 10 rating. But if we're talking terrifying and haunted and, you know, ominous, 2 out of 10. Next, uh, I had a lot of people uh, telling me to travel to the Oxford Hotel in Denver. Now, equal amount of people were telling me to visit the Buckhorn Exchange, which is a notoriously haunted uh, restaurant in the Denver area that was uh, once upon a time home to uh, miners and cowboys and loggers and even visited by Teddy Roosevelt himself. And the Buckhorn Exchange apparently serves up uh, 
some mean cuts of steak, uh, but I was unable to get inside there because I had to leave Denver uh, by 4 o'clock p.m., and, and that place didn't even open till 5 o'clock. So with Buckhorn Exchange being off the possibility list, I went to people's number two choice, as voted on my social medias, and I, I went to the Oxford Hotel in Denver. Amazing place. Little background on this uh, on this place. Uh, Oxford Hotel was uh, established in 1891. Uh, it was owned by Frank Edbrook, and it was renovated in the 1930s into this Art Deco style uh, that people see today. And, and this actually caused quite a bit of a stir within the Denver community. You know, you, you were right there, um, you know, right around the time of the Great Depression. Uh, people were wondering if all that money could have gone towards a better use. But they, they refurbished this super old hotel. And when I got there, <laughs> I arrived with no plan, no contact, no lead of any kind. I literally walked through the front doors, make a beeline to the check-in desk. And this place is just stunningly gorgeous. I mean, super high ceilings. It's massive, square footage off the charts. There was a giant old-fashioned birdcage in the lobby. They had old-fashioned trinkets and knickknacks. And even the check-in desk itself, uh, behind the check-in desk, there was all these fancy bottles of liquor and wine. And I, you know, there's a couple guys chatting in the lobby, and they looked rather well-to-do. Um, I think the going rate uh, to stay at the Oxford Hotel is right around $300 a night or so. It's a fancy place. You might bring your black tie or a little black dress. But I make a beeline for the check-in desk where I meet a employee named Alex, and she was really sweet. And I asked Alex, you know, is there is there any chance I could get somebody here to share with me a, you know, some of the history of the building or share a couple spooky stories? You know, I, I've heard this place is haunted. She was really cooperative, and uh, she said she would love to tell me a few things. She needed to get um, somebody else's permission to get away from the desk because she didn't want to get in trouble with her boss, and I understood. So I just kind of hang out in the lobby for a bit, checking things out, feeling the vibes. And, you know, according to what I had researched online, uh, people for many years now, many decades, have been reporting, you know, seeing a woman's face in a mirror as you walk by in, in the hallways. Uh, people see ghostly apparitions uh, standing in various places of the, of the hotel, and just as quickly they disappear. Uh, disembodied voices, doors opening, doors closing by themselves. So I'm kind of researching some of this on my phone as I'm waiting for Alex to get back to me. And uh, in walks Stuart. <laughs> now, Stuart was a bit of a talker. He had worked there for going on 25 years. He told me some really cool stories about the time that he checked in the Dalai Lama. He had met Harrison Ford, Dave Chappelle, members of the Beastie Boys uh, band. Uh, he, he rubbed shoulders with all these celebrities who have passed through the Oxford Hotel. Now, Stuart was a healthy skeptic. He told me, quite frankly, ghosts really aren't his thing. But he doesn't disbelieve either. He just likes to keep two feet firmly planted on the ground. And as I got to chatting with Stuart, which was mostly just listening, because again, Stuart was a bit of a chatterbox, and one heck of a guy. He was very likable. Um, but it's kind of funny because he leaned towards being a li little bit more of a skeptic, but the more he talked with me, he shared with me that over the course of his life, he had had tons of precognitive dreams and premonitions and psychic moments, and and I'm thinking that's so ironic. <laughs> 
that he has like these psychic abilities, but he's a little skeptical when it comes to the ghostly things. Uh, but again, he didn't disbelieve. Uh, he's, he's open to being persuaded. But he actually uh, told me the story about what happened in the hotel bar. Now, he took me back to the bar. It was just around the corner from the check-in desk. Unfortunately, the bar doors were locked, and for whatever reason, they couldn't get in there until 5 o'clock. So I had no access to get into this place, which was a real shame because this bar looked amazing. It looked straight out of Prohibition era. And when I told Stuart that, he said, well, that's ironic you say that because the bar actually opened in 1933, the day after Prohibition ended. So as soon as it was legal to drink again, they were like, we're opening this bar and the Oxford Hotel drinks on us. And it looks like straight out of the 1930s. I mean, and there was like glowing light on the inside. And But anyway, I digress. The story Stuart told me was uh, a few decades ago, um, there was a lady, uh, uh, the, the bartender who had worked there for the longest time. She was like their longest standing employee. And she claims... That one night, late at night, right around Christmas time, actually, a postal worker came into the bar at the Oxford Hotel. What struck her as a little bit odd was that this postal worker looked like he was from a different time, a different era. His attire was very old-fashioned. He asked for a beer, so she poured him a beer. She watched him, over the course of a few minutes, drink the entire thing. Now, the employee turned around to grab a, a rag or whatever off the bar counter... And then just a split second later, she turned around and the guy had completely vanished. Now that was odd enough, but what was even stranger is the, the empty beer glass that he had just drank. It was filled to the brim with beer. <laughs> so we have a disappearing ghost and reappearing beer simultaneously. So it was really interesting. And um, so I exchanged pleasantries with Stuart there for a little bit, wished him well. Uh, met back up with Alex, the uh, front check-in desk girl, and she asked me if I wanted a tour of room 320. <laughs> and I'm thinking, hot damn, I do. Now, I knew nothing about room 320, and so I start recording. I'm doing a live stream on my Facebook page. And if again, if you want to see this, uh, go back to about January 24th on my Facebook page, and you can see a six-minute long live stream video tour of Alex telling me this entire story. But the, the, the story of Room 320 goes like this. So in the early 1900s, uh, there was a lady of the night, a, a prostitute named Flora, Florence, was known to frequent the Oxford Hotel. And uh, upon doing so, she encountered uh, multiple times a traveling salesman. Now, she, she fell for him, and he appeared to fall for her. And they would meet up every now and again, and absolutely just smitten with each other. He would always promise her the world that someday he'd take her out to California and they'd get married. Well, eventually, he breaks the news to Florence that he's actually married. He's a family man with kids. He tried to break it off and, and tried to tell her that he can no longer uh, have relations with her. She was heartbroken. She was devastated. She convinced this guy, this traveling salesman, to stay the night with her one more time at, at the Oxford. So they went up to room 320. And at that point in time, Florence shot this guy in the heart. Uh, she then turned the gun on herself, killed herself. Uh, apparently, the gentleman didn't die on the spot, but died en route to the hospital. And 
we were standing right there on the site of the murder. And, um, yeah, it was really interesting. Alex, you know, was telling me this and to be in the same room that it happened in was kind of surreal. And the interior of this was almost like a, a mix of modern and old fashioned. Like the, the bathroom was all this beautiful original tile work. Uh, there was a writing desk towards the front of the room. The, the headboard on the bed looked like it was straight out of the early 1900s. I, I think it's original. Uh, but just to, to stand there on that spot was chilling. It was a little bit chilling to be in the room where it took place. Now, Alex told me that since that fatal event, anybody who stays at the hotel, men in particular, report that in the middle of the night they can feel a playful presence tickling their feet, touching their toes, uh, playing this little piggy goes to the market, essentially. <laughs> and people speculate that it's Florence. Uh, trying to get frisky with with uh, the the male, um, you know, people who are staying the night there at the Oxford. Females generally aren't messed with at all. So again, it makes them think that it's Florence who's uh, being a little promiscuous there. As far as a spook factor, I'm going to give the Oxford Hotel a solid four out of ten, uh, and that would be much higher if it weren't for the fact that this place was so amazingly beautiful. I I, I absolutely could not believe how stunning this place is. Fancy, ritzy, a lot of marble, a lot of granite, original woodwork, high ceilings. Now, um, Alex took me down uh, to the basement hallway, which kind of wrapped around to a bathroom and wrapped around to another hallway and then popped back up in the lobby. And she was showing me some of the original blueprints. So on the wall, they had uh, blueprints framed and framed pictures of uh, some of the original pictures of the Oxford when it opened. But uh, yeah, solid four out of 10 on the Spookometer. Uh, I would love to stay in room 320 overnight and do a paranormal investigation. And, uh, you know, it's all fun and games, giving a place a four out of 10 on the spook factor until Florence tickles my little toes in the middle of the night, because I would probably double it up to an eight out of 10 on the spook factor. But it didn't feel malicious. It didn't feel heavy. It didn't feel like I needed to get out of there. But uh, due to the history of the place and how long it's been around, uh, solid four out of ten. Now, before I left Denver, Colorado, I had a few people chiming in saying I couldn't leave town without visiting a stretch of road called Riverdale Road. Now, I did a little bit of research, and this is an 11-mile stretch of winding road that connects the areas of Thornton and Brighton, just outside of Denver. Uh, this is uh, the place where uh, many car accidents have taken place, many fatalities on the road, in fact, uh, one of my neighbors here in Omaha chimed in on my social media pages saying that she used to live in this area of Denver and she used to be a, uh, a police dispatcher, which I, which I had no idea. <laughs> and she says that when she was working back there, yeah, multiple times, countless times over the years, they had dispatched uh, for fatal car accidents, weird happenings, you know, violent crimes right along that stretch of road. Apparently, it's also the area where there had been a lot of lynching of former slaves. There had been instances of satanic cults and animal sacrifices. Uh, people have reported that that Riverdale Road uh, is also home to phantom hitchhikers. You know, people will pass somebody uh, trying to hitch a ride. They look in their rearview mirror and poof, nobody's there. 
Other people report uh, ghostly cowboys walking around the field uh, adjacent to the road in their cowboy boots and disappearing. And actually, while I was driving this stretch of road, which didn't take very long, it's, it's just about an 11-mile stretch of road, one thing that kind of took me aback was uh, down the hill from this house was this giant gnarly tree, and the tree was pretty creepy. Actually, there was a lot of creepy-looking uh, old trees in the area. But sitting at the base of one of this tree was a giant slab of wood, probably about five feet high, about three feet wide. And on this uh, plank of wood was painted the uh, horrific image of the clown from the movie It. And right next to that was a yellow raincoat that was propped upright somehow and a red balloon. So if you've seen that horror movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, I don't know if this was a... I'm assuming it was a practical joke or a Halloween decoration from that family up the hill. Maybe they maybe they leave it there uh, 365 days a year. I don't know. Uh, but I saw that and it just gave me the willies. And I was already a little on edge because I have to admit that driving that stretch of road kind of creeped me out. Uh, I got to the end of Riverdale Road and I pulled off underneath of a bridge. And I got out, and I, I was live-streaming and uh, saying a couple words about what I experienced. And out of the corner of my eye, I see a little bit of movement, uh, kind of up the the underpass, uh, the embankment, like underneath the bridge. It was kind of snowy and icy. And I saw something out of the corner of my eye, and I looked at it straight on, and it was almost like this translucent, shimmery silhouette of a person. I could see head, shoulder, arms, legs... And they were walking. It was almost like, if you can imagine, like the opposite of a shadow. It wasn't dark. It, it looked like the shadow of somebody who was walking or moving, but there was nobody there. And instead of being a black shadow, it was like white. It was like translucent. It was it was uh, almost see-through. And it, it, it didn't scare me necessarily, but it kind of gave me pause. And I was like, what the heck was that? Like I, I saw it looking straight on. And I don't know who it was, what it was, but I, I got a good look at it for about three seconds before it disappeared. Now, was it a ghost? Was it an apparition? Was I glimpsing some leftover energy pocket from the past? Now, I'm not really sure, <laughs> but um, that was kind of the cherry on the top because as I was saying in this uh, Facebook live stream, that stretch of Riverdale Road gave me the willies, uh, more so than any of the other haunted places I had visited, which is ironic, because when you're driving, you're in your own car. The windows are up. You have a seatbelt on. You have the ability to go faster if something is chasing you, or the ability to hit the brakes if something's in front of you. Like, you're, you're in control, as opposed to being at a hotel or brewery or haunted restaurant where you're kind of just exposed. So you think I would feel less scared driving a stretch of road, but in fact, I was more scared. And in terms of a spook factor, I would say Riverdale Road connecting Thornton and Brighton near Denver comes in at a solid 6 out of 10 on the spook factor meter. Probably would bump up to a 7 or 8 at nighttime, uh, which I'd be open to trying sometime if I had backup and reinforcements with me, if maybe I could go there with a paranormal team. But yeah, it feels off. The energy there felt off, uh, different. It felt sad. It felt heavy. A uh, little bit ominous, 
And, you know, maybe, maybe people get that feeling because they're channeling into the events that used to happen there. I don't assume, you know, car accidents and trauma and lynchings and satanic cults, it doesn't necessarily leave the best stamp energetically on a place. And actually, uh, this one girl on my social media pages chimed in um, after my live stream, and she said it's she said that she was glad I covered that particular spot. Uh, unfortunately, her ex-boyfriend died on that particular stretch of road, which unfortunately is more common than than <laughs> than it should be. Um, but yeah, if you're driving Riverdale Road near Denver, be careful. Slow down. You know, keep your headlights on at all times. Uh, take some of those turns slowly uh, and uh, keep your head on a swivel. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet... You can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. So from Riverdale Road, I drove to Grand Island, Nebraska. And I got to thinking I should contact Doug. <laughs> Doug Holmes is a long-term volunteer at the Grand Theater in Grand Island, Nebraska. Uh, he was kind enough to meet me there to give me the Grand Tour, pun intended, <laughs> the Grand Theater is located at 316 West 3rd Street in Grand Island. And uh, the theater is a one-screen theater. They just have one, um, you know, one theater there. 487-seater. So if you pack the house, that's how many people you're going to get in there. It's uh, super old-fashioned. I mean, it is, if you could imagine, like, the quintessential old-timey movie theater, that's what the Grand is. I mean, from the outside in, it, it almost looks like you're looking back in time. Um, it was actually built on uh, the site of the Lydia Theater, which was later remodeled as the new Grand Theater. And it was actually due to reopen, but unfortunately it was destroyed by a fire on December 8th, 1936. And it was rebuilt and opened on May 5th, 1937, uh, with a film named A Star is Born, starring Janet Gaynor. So uh, this place was uh, built with a stadium style, uh, if you can imagine the stadium style seating, uh, which is common now in a lot of movie theaters, but back in its day, it was truly unique. It was considered a luxury, right? So the owner of the Grand Theater was a guy named Wally Kemp. Uh, he was a great guy. Everybody loved this guy. Uh, Wally loved movies. He loved sharing his passion for movies with others. This guy loved children. He was great with kids. In fact, he would often show, uh, have free movie screenings for kids. Uh, he only asked that they would stand up and uh, put their hand over their heart and say the Pledge of Allegiance before some of these showings. Um, and he, uh, unfortunately, the uh, movie theater was closed in 1986, and it, it, people thought that that was the end of a very long uh, amazing journey, but it was actually rescued by a, a group of community volunteers who over the years have restored the building back to its original splendor, uh, especially uh, they restored the Art Deco style facade. And again, I mean, this place looks like you're traveling back in time. When you walk in, the concessions area, uh, it's, it's hard to describe, but it has those like old-fashioned um, 
uh, light bulbs, you know, all around the back. They have old fashioned popcorn makers. Uh, everything is, is, you know, attention to detail. Uh, the carpeting's unique. The ceilings are high. Uh, the, it's all in the decor, you know, a lot of wood, a lot of old fashioned uh, kind of things. And you walk into the theater itself, it will literally take your breath away. Uh, the lighting, the, the high ceilings, there's a stage, an actual stage up there below the screen. And I suppose if you were creative, uh, you might be able to put on a small play or small production, but, uh, the stage is not big enough to do like a full blown, uh, Broadway production. Um, they primarily still show movies there, uh, rather than doing live events, you know, like plays and whatnot. Uh, but they, they do pretty well. And it's a nonprofit organization. They show movies on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. Um, in fact, when Doug was giving me the tour, uh, he said that when Top Gun Maverick was released, they were sold out for like four straight weekends in a row. Packed the house, which is good to see. You know, because in a world of, um, and I was talking to Doug about this, but in like in a world of streaming, digital everything, we have, you know, thousands of movies at our fingertips the second they're released. Nothing replaces the feeling of going to see a movie on the big screen, like the way it was meant to be seen. Big old bucket of buttery popcorn on your lap, you know, a friend or two on your left and right hand side, and you sit back and you dim the lights and you kind of get lost in the magic of the movie and you can escape reality for those two hours. And the Grand Theater, I'll put it this way, it is so beautiful, it's so historic, it's so unique and original and old-fashioned. I was telling Doug, I wouldn't mind taking my daughter Sky, driving the two hours from Omaha to Grand Island just to watch a movie <laughs> in this theater. Um, and that's really saying something, considering here in Omaha we have countless movie theaters, you know, each with like a dozen auditoriums. But nothing, nothing will re replace the Grand Theater. So Doug's giving me the private tour. He's sharing uh, some of the history of the place. And uh, he just was like a wealth of information. Uh, he took me through the catacombs. <laughs> yes, the catacombs of the Grand Theater. So underneath, and, and it's like you walk down this stairwell, and there's like a mini museum of the Grand Theater. It has old framed pictures of what it looked like when it originally opened. Uh, they have some, they had saved some original uh, seated cushions uh, from when the theater first opened. They had pictures of Wally Kemp, the owner. But you go beyond the small museum, you get into the catacombs. So imagine brick tunnels that lead into other nooks and crannies and side tunnels and, and tangent hallways. And it's dark and it's uh, riddled with cobwebs and... Everywhere you look, there's old movie memorabilia from leftover 3D movie glasses to old movie posters from the 80s. Uh, they have, um, oh my gosh, you name it. They had cardboard cutouts of like uh, Star Wars characters. So you turn the corner and you have like a Sith Lord with a lightsaber staring at you from Star Wars. And yeah, the jump factor is kind of creepy down there in the catacombs. And they have an old-fashioned boiler room which Doug agreed kind of gives him the willies. And now, you know, Doug is one of the volunteers. He said it especially gets creepy at nighttime, you know, after some of these, uh, you know, public screenings or movie nights after they end, you know, he has to go through and pick up and go down into the hallways and boiler room. And he has to, he has to shut off all the lights and lock up for the night. And he says, yeah, it's, it gets pretty creepy. It almost feels like you're being followed or somebody's right behind you. 
The volunteers there have a great sense of humor. Uh, there is a doll, uh, if you could imagine, like a two and a half foot tall doll, fully dressed. And they like to prank each other by moving her to various parts of the theater, whether it's up there in uh, the room where, where they have, have the projector or whether it's down in the catacombs or one of the bathrooms. You could turn a corner and boom, you have this doll and it kind of scares the bejesus out of each other. In fact, we were in uh, Wally's office, which still looks like it would have in the 1970s. A lot of wood, a lot of uh, faux or fake wood. Uh, the walls were wood, the ceiling was wood. They had a actual desk with a rotary phone. So we're in there, and I'm kind of looking at pictures of Wally, the owner, and the office is just as it was when he was alive. He's since passed. And but on the wall there was this like register vent or this air duct, and I look over and I like I almost <laughs> I almost like shrieked because there was a mask of the clown from It. So again with with this It clown, you know, it was a problem on Riverdale Road as well. Seeing that, but there in Wally's office, one of the uh, the volunteers had put the the clown mask in the vent, and it caught me off guard. I'll tell you that. So Grand Theater, uh, amazing place. Uh, just want to say again, thanks to Doug for giving me that grand tour. Doug Holmes and uh, Doug's wa- uh, sister Kim was also there, kind of tagging along, and I uh, signed a copy of my book for her. And she's a sweetheart. So big shout out to Kim if she's listening. Now a couple years ago. Going all the way back to 2019. <laughs> Feels like a long time ago. That was pre-pandemic. Uh, uh, I actually did a nightly investigation at the Grand Theater. So when I arrived there a couple days ago, that was not the first time I had been there. Back in 2019, Eddie and Pat and myself, the uh, Paranormal Dads, we and a couple of our friends, uh, we went to the Grand Theater for a special uh, screening of The Goonies, which... You can't get better 80 movies than uh, 80s movie than the Goonies. So we watched the Goonies. It was like a public showing. Everybody left, and we kind of turned down the lights, got out our flashlights and EMF detectors, and we walked around the catacombs of the Grand Theater, hoping to catch some ghostly activity, whether it's Wally or somebody else. And my friend Eddie and uh, one of our friends Amanda, they were together in a crawl space. I'm talking. We are down in the catacombs like in a furnace room, and then there was a wall that was knocked out behind the furnace, and they crawled through this little crawl space, and they pop into another dark, shadowy brick room, dirt floor, mind you. And Eddie and Amanda are sitting back there, and the rest of us had kind of basically called it a night. We were kind of sitting up in the lobby just kind of waiting for those two to finish up the investigation. And Suddenly, we we see Eddie and Amanda coming back up the stairs, and Eddie looks like he had seen a ghost, (laughs) pun intended. Um, Amanda's freaking out. We're we're trying to get information out of them, and once we got everyone settled down, come to find out, they were down there doing an EVP session. Now, EVP stands for Electronic Voice Phenomenon, where you'll have a digital audio recorder, or you can use your cell phone if you wish, And you can record and you can ask questions to the spirit world. And although you might not hear anything, when you go to play back the recording, sometimes you can catch words or phrases from the spirit world. Now, what Eddie and Amanda experienced is truly unique because what they what they experienced was a spirit interacting with them in live time. And not only did they catch it on their audio devices, they heard it with their ears. So they were about to call it a night in one of them asked out loud, they said, okay, well, we know we've been, 
you know, in your space here all night and we've investigated this theater. Would you like us to leave now? And right as soon as they said that, they heard a reply. It was a very breathy, yes. And at that point, <laughs> they, uh, you know, tucked their tails between their legs and they made a beeline for the upstairs. And, uh, you know, in hindsight, Eddie says it wasn't terrifying. It was just a little alarming. It was shocking because it was unexpected. And that's often the case with the spirit world. You know, you can have a chuckle about it in hindsight, but when you have a encounter with a ghost or a spirit or when you have a paranormal event occur, you're not expecting it to happen. And when it does, it not only gives you goosebumps, but your fight or flight response kicks in and sometimes you scooby, you know, you scooby do it out of there as fast as you can. So, Grand Theater, Grand Island, Nebraska. I'm going to I'm going to rank this a 2 out of 10 on the spookometer. Uh and it's only because Wally I believe is the spirit who's haunting this place. Uh it's the spirit of Wally, good guy, nice guy, just a everybody loved him. Uh and if if that's the ghost you have wandering around, it's it's not too terrifying. Uh but the history is very much alive. You can feel it. It's palpable. You can you can feel it right down to the core of your intuition when you're in there. And I'm not going to lie, I walked through some of those catacombs by myself, and it does it does feel like someone's there with you. You don't exactly feel alone. And while it may not be terrifying, um, it's definitely a real feeling. And that's why I'm giving it a 2 out of 10. Haunted, yes, but in a very good way, unlike Riverdale Road. <laughs> So here's my final thoughts for the day, ladies and gentlemen. You know, Einstein once said, energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can only change forms, right? So if that's true, then events from the past essentially leave an energetic stamp on the present. Trauma and tragedy can stain the soil of the very ground we walk on. We can feel it in our bones from the soles of our feet all the way up to the hairs on the back of our neck, which are standing on end. You know, high emotions create high strangeness. Vibrations from the past echo through space and time, leaving us feeling a little rattled, leaving us with goosebumps sometimes. So the curtain that divides our world from the spirit world is rather thin at times. And perhaps this is especially true in historic locations, places where memories are made decade after decade and piled atop one another like pictures inside of a photo album. Spirits are everywhere. You know, they can be found in our parks and hotels and restaurants and bars. They can be found on winding stretches of road and even inside of movie theaters. Not all of them are scary or harbor ill intent, but even the benevolent ones can leave you feeling a little uneasy, like you're being watched, like someone is following you as you walk upstairs from the basement. So chances are you're never truly alone. But don't let that stop you from exploring this big, beautiful world. You know, travel's a great way to ensure that you live a full and memorable life. And while you're guaranteed to encounter some haunted locations along your travels, chances are you'll make it back home in one piece, even if you've picked up a ghostly hitchhiker or two along the way. So until next time, I hope your travels are so safe and so strange. <laughs>